Section 37 of 93 by Victor Hugo, translated by Aline Delano. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 3, Book 2, Chapter 2, Dol. Dol, a Franco-Spanish city in Brittany, as the old records call it, is not really a city. It is a street, a grand old Gothic street, with rows of houses supported by pillars on both sides of it. These houses are not built in straight lines, but stand irregularly, now and then elbowing into the street, which is, to be sure, a very wide one. The rest of the town is a mere network of lanes, all leading into this great diametrical street, emptying into it, one might say, like streams into a river, with Mortdol towering above it. The city, with neither gates nor walls, could not have withstood a siege, but the street was quite capable of sustaining one. The houses, like promontories, which but fifty years ago were still standing, and the two pillared galleries bordering the street, made it a strong and well-nigh impregnable redoubt. Each of the houses was a fortress in itself, and the enemy would have found himself forced to capture them one by one. Almost in the middle of the street stood the old market. The innkeeper of the Croix Blanchard had told the truth. A furious battle was raging in Dole, even while he was speaking. A nocturnal duel between the whites who arrived in the morning, and the blues who appeared at night, had burst suddenly upon the town. The forces were unequal, the whites numbering six thousand, while the blues were only fifteen hundred, but they fought with equal fury. Surprising as it may seem, it was the fifteen hundred who attacked the six thousand. A mob pitted against a phalanx. On one side were six thousand peasants, with images of the Sacred Heart upon their leathern waistcoats, white ribbons on their round hats, Christian emblems on their leather cuffs, rosaries hanging from their belts, carrying pitchforks oftener than sabres, and carbines without bayonets, dragging along cannon by means of ropes, wretchedly equipped, undisciplined, with no suitable weapons, yet mad with rage. On the other side were fifteen thousand soldiers, wearing three-cornered hats with the tricolored cockade, long-tailed coats with broad lapels, and shoulder belts crossed, short sabres with copper hilts, muskets with long bayonets, well-drilled and disciplined, obedient though savage, knowing how to obey like men who couldn't need command, volunteers like the others, but patriots withal, although barefooted and in rags, paladins in the shape of peasants fighting in defense of monarchy, barefooted heroes in the ranks of the revolution, while the life and soul of both royalists and republicans was centered in their leaders, Lantanac, the man advanced in years, and the young Govan, Standing side by side in the revolution with young giants like Danton, Saint-Just, and Robespierre, were the ideal and youthful forms of Hoche and Marceau, and like unto them was Gauvin. Gauvin was thirty years of age, with the chest of Hercules, the solemn eye of a prophet, and the laugh of a child. He never smoked. He neither drank nor swore. He carried a dressing-case with him throughout the entire war, and took great care of his nails, his teeth, and his luxuriant brown hair. Whenever they halted, it was his habit carefully to shake his commander's uniform, riddled with balls and whitened with dust as it was. Though always rushing headlong into the thickest of the fray, he had never been wounded. His voice, unusually melodious, could assume at need the imperative ring of command. He set the example of sleeping on the ground, in the wind, the rain, and the snow, wrapped in his cloak, with his charming head resting on a stone. His was a heroic and innocent soul. Let him but take a saber in his hand, he was straightway transformed. He had that effeminate aspect that changes to something formidable in battle. A thinker and philosopher withal, in short a youthful sage. Beautiful to look upon as Alcibiades, his speech showed the wisdom of Socrates. 
In that grand improvisation which men called the French Revolution, this young man at once became a leader. The division which he had formed was like a Roman legion, an army on a small scale, complete in itself. It consisted of infantry and cavalry. It had its scouts, its pioneers, its sappers, its engineers. And as the Roman legion had its catapults, this army had its cannon. Three well-mounted pieces strengthened the division, while leaving it easy to handle. Lantenac was also a military leader, but a more accomplished one, more cautious and at the same time more daring. The veritable old hero is cooler than a younger man, because he is farther removed from the heyday of life, and more daring from the consciousness that he is nearer death. What has he to lose? So slight a matter. This explains the bold and yet scientific maneuvers of Lantenac. Yet on the whole, in this obstinate wrestling match between the old and the young, Gauvin almost always had the advantage, and he owed this rather to chance than to anything in himself. Every sort of good fortune, even though it may be terrible, falls to the lot of youth. A victory has something feminine in its nature. Lantenac was exasperated with Gauvin, first because his nephew had defeated him, and second because he was his nephew. What possessed him to be Jacobin, a Gauvin? Unruly youngster that he was, his heir, for the Marquis had no children, a great-nephew, almost a grandchild. Ah! cried this quasi-grandfather. If he falls into my hands, I will kill him like a dog. The Republic, moreover, had good reason to feel uneasy about this Marquis de Lantenac. He had no sooner landed than its terror began. The mere utterance of his name was like a powder train spread through the Vendean insurrection, of which he straightway became the center. In a revolt of this kind, where each one is jealous of his neighbor, where each has his bush or his ravine, if a superior leader appears, the separate chiefs who have been on a level will rally round him and submit themselves to his authority. Nearly all the forest captains had joined Lantenac, and whether near or remote, they all obeyed him. Only Gavard, who had been the first to join him, had departed. And why was this? Because he had enjoyed the confidence of the Republic and been in a position of authority. Gavard had held all the secrets and had adopted the old-fashioned system of civil war, which Lantenac had come to change and replace. A successor can hardly agree with a man of that stamp. The shoe of La Rouerie was not a fit for Lantenac, and so Gavard had gone to join Bonchamp. Lantenac belonged to the military school of Frederick II. He understood the art of warfare, which consists of combining the greater with the lesser. He favored neither the great Catholic and royal army, that mass of confusion, destined to be crushed, nor the guerrilla troops scattered through the thickets and hedges, useful to harass but powerless to crush. There is either no end to guerrilla warfare, or else it comes to an unfortunate one. It begins by attacking the Republic and ends by robbing a diligence. Lantenac did not propose to carry on the Breton War altogether in the open country, like La roche jacques nor yet in the forest like Chouan. He neither approved of the Vendée nor of the Chouannerie. He believed in real warfare. He was willing to use the peasant, but he wished to support him by the soldier. He required bands for strategy and regiments for tactics. The village armies, so easily disbanded, he considered excellent for an attack, an ambush, or a surprise, but he felt that they lacked solidity. They were like water in his hands. He sought a solid foundation for this unstable and diffusive warfare. To the savage army of the forest he proposed to add regular troops as a sort of pivot about which to maneuver the peasants. Had this scheme, deep-laid and terrible as it was, proved successful, the Vendée would never have been conquered. But where could regular troops be found? Where look for soldiers? Where seek for regiments and find a ready-made army? In England. 
hence Lantanac's determination that the English should effect a landing. Thus do parties compromise with their consciences. He quite lost sight of the red coat, eclipsed as it was by the white cockade. Lantanac had but one idea, first to seize upon some point on the coast, and then to deliver it into the hands of Pitt. It was with this object that, seeing Dole unprotected, he had thrown himself upon it, knowing that once in possession of Dole, he could readily gain Mordole, and by means of the latter gain a footing on the coast. The spot was well chosen. From Mordole, the cannon would sweep Frenois on one side, and saint Brelade on the other, would keep the fleet of Cancal at a distance, and leave the whole beach, from Raz sur Couinon to saint Melois des ondes open to an attack. In order to ensure success, Lantanac had brought with him six thousand of the most active men in the regiment at his disposal, together with all his artillery, ten sixteen-pound culverins, one demi-culverin, and one four-pounder. He proposed to establish a strong battery on Montdole, on the principle that a thousand shots fired from ten cannon do more execution than fifteen hundred fired from five cannon. With six thousand men he felt sure of success. In the direction of Avranches they had nothing to fear but Gauvin with his fifteen hundred men. Towards Dina there was Lachelle, to be sure, with twenty-five thousand, but he was twenty leagues away. In regard to the latter, Lantanac felt quite safe, the distance offsetting the numbers. And as for Gauvin, though he was quite near, his force was very small. We may here remark that Lachelle was a fool, who afterwards allowed his twenty-five thousand men to be slaughtered on the moors of Croix-Bataille, a mistake for which he strove to atone by suicide. So Lantanac felt quite safe. His entrance into Dole had been sudden and stern. The Marquis de Lantanac enjoyed a hard reputation, and knowing him to be merciless, the terrified inhabitants shut themselves up in their houses without attempting resistance, and the six thousand Vendeans installed themselves in the city after the disorderly fashion of a band of rustics. It was almost like a market ground. In default of quartermasters, they chose their own quarters, camping at haphazard, cooking in the open air, dispersing hither and yonder through the churches, dropping their muskets to take up their rosaries. Lantanac, accompanied by a few artillery officers, proceeded without delay to reconnoitre Montdole, leaving Gouge le Bruant, whom he had appointed field sergeant, in command. This Gouge le Bruant has left but an indistinct trace in history. He had two nicknames, Brise Bleu, in token of his massacre of the patriots, and Imanus, because there was something indescribably horrible about him. Imanus is derived from Imanis, an old low Norman word which expresses a superhuman degree of ugliness, almost godlike in its terror, a demon, a satyr, an ogre. An old manuscript says, With my own eyes I beheld Imanus. Today the old people in Brittany no longer know who Gouge le Bruant was, nor what Brise Bleu means, but they have a vague idea of the Imanus, whose name is interwoven with all the local superstitions. He still is spoken of in Tremorel and Plumogat the two villages where Gouge le Bruant has left the impress of his ill-omened footstep. In the Vendée, where all the inhabitants were savages, Gouge le Bruant was the barbarian. He was a sort of cacique, tattooed all over with crucifixes and fleur-de-lis. Upon his face was the hideous, almost supernatural glow of a soul unlike that of any other human being. He was as brave in battle as Satan himself, and atrociously cruel when the battle was over. His heart, full of mysterious determinations, now urged him to acts of devotion, now to deeds of wildest fury. Did he use his reason? Yes, after a serpentine fashion. Heroism was his starting point, murder his goal. It was impossible to conceive how his resolutions, often grand in their very monstrosity, could have entered his mind. He was capable of any horror when least expected. 
His ferocity was on a scale of epic grandeur, hence his peculiar surname, Imanus. The Marquis de Lantanac relied upon his cruelty, but while none could dispute the fact that he excelled in cruelty in matters of strategy and tactics, he was less efficient, and it may perhaps have been a mistake on the part of the Marquis when he made him his field sergeant. But, however that may be, he left him behind in charge, with the injunction to look after matters in general. Gouge le Bruant was more of a fighter than a soldier, and guarding a town was not so much in his line as massacring a clan would have been. Still, he posted sentries. When at nightfall the Marquis, having decided upon the position of his battery, was returning to Dole, he suddenly caught the sound of cannon. Looking in the direction of the sound, he saw a red smoke rising from the street. This meant a surprise, an invasion, an attack. Fighting was going on in the town. Although not easily taken by surprise, he was now utterly amazed, for he had anticipated nothing of the sort. What could it mean? Evidently not, Govan, for a man would hardly attack an enemy outnumbering him four to one. Could it be L'Echelle? But was it possible for him to have made such a forced march? L'Echelle was improbable, Govan impossible. Lantanac urged on his horse. On the way he met some of the inhabitants in the act of flight, but when he questioned them they seemed beside themselves with terror, crying, The Blues! The Blues! And on his arrival he found the situation a bad one. This is what had happened. End of section 37